Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to Criminology Matters, the criminology podcast series in conjunction with LawPod. I'm Gillian McNall and today we have John Topping from the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work. John, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, good morning. Uh, I am based over in social sciences, education, social work. Uh, I've been a lecturer in criminology for over 10 years now, and I specialise in and around the area of policing, everything from police reform to community policing, public order policing, paramilitarism, uh, anything uh, really uh, under the umbrella of policing in a post-conflict society. Um, Outside the the day job, um, I also wear a couple of other hats. Um, I'm on the executive committee of the Committee on the Administration of Justice, one of the most prominent uh, human rights NGOs in the country uh, over the last 30, 40 years. And also I am currently chairperson of an organisation called Community Restorative Justice Ireland, which is the leading community-based restorative uh, organisation across the island of Ireland. Brilliant. And predominantly your work has been in the news recently due to Stop and Search do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the, the stop and search work has taken off over the last two to three years. I think, you know, if, if you take a little bit of a step back, stop and search uh, has been a very prominent issue uh, in England and Wales, certainly for the last 40 years, you know, uh, you know, going back, for example, to the Brixton riots of 1981, even more recently, the London riots of 2011, stop and search was considered to, to be one of the main drivers uh, for violence against the police. But... Uh, um, I think a, a curious thing in Northern Ireland is the fact that stop and search uh, has tended to be quite invisible from public policy debates. Um, now, it certainly hasn't been entirely invisible in terms of terrorist powers. Um, I think we actually know quite a lot around the, the counter-terrorist type stop and search um, through organisations such as the CAJ and Academic Research, um, which has pointed uh, out to significant issues around uh, use and potential abuse. But it's the ordinary powers which I've been concentrating on over the last uh, three years, really. Um, this idea of everyday stop and search, um, which are done mainly under a thing called PACE, which some of the listeners may have heard, the Police and Criminal Evidence, Northern Ireland Order of 1989, and also the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. Those are v- virtually identical with the powers in England and Wales, and they would constitute the majority of ordinary stops and searches. In fact, around about 70, 75% of all stop and search in the country is done under those powers and it was really back in about 2017 I was approached by the Detail TV um, they're an online investigative journalism um, uh, organisation uh, and they had uncovered through some freedom of information uh, quite a, a large data set from PSNI around stop and search so I, I initially gave them a hand to help uh, decipher um, the, the Excel sheets which ran to uh, tens of thousands of 
rows of information. Uh, and certainly one of the things we started to uncover was certainly the, the, the stop and search of children uh, and young people as one issue and also volume as well. I think the one thing which stands out um, in Northern Ireland is that overall we're doing stop and search at a much, much higher rate than England and Wales. Um, and I think the easiest way to look at that rather than delve into absolute figures, uh, because at the minute we do about 30,000 stops and searches a year uh, in England and Wales is about 300,000. So how do we compare those apples and pears? Um, well, the easiest way to do that is per thousand of population. So at the minute, stop and search in England and Wales is done at about five per thousand of population. In Northern Ireland, the overall stop and search rate is 15 per thousand of population. That's three times the level. Uh, and that includes all powers now. So even if we, in fairness, strip away the terrorist-related stop and search, that leaves us still doing these ordinary powers under PACE, MDA, at about 11 per thousand uh, of population, so still significantly higher than anywhere else. So that was the one thing which jumped out about volume. Um, and that is set in the context of the major police reforms we've seen in England and Wales and Scotland around stop and search, where they recognised it was a problem, it was creating tensions with the community, and through deliberate policy choice. They they have reduced stop and search uh, down to the levels they have, but that has not touched Northern Ireland uh, at all, really. Uh, the other issue is with regard to effectiveness. Um, uh, you know, stop and search, I think, is one of those lovely... Uh, governmental policy terms, catch-all uh, police powers, which deals with just about any criminogenic situation under the sun. Uh, but, you know, that probably the, the easiest way to look at that is in terms of arrest rates, um, because, of course, most stop-and-search powers by uh, the ordinary powers, by their legal nature, are, in fact, investigative. Um, so where there is reasonable suspicion that some the police officer believes, for example, somebody has committed a crime, they have something illegal on their possession, that then gives them the grounds um, to, to do a stop and search. Um, so you would generally expect if the reasonable grounds are in fact reasonable, there will be an outcome to that. There, in fact, there will be an arrest or further action. So at the minute, what we know is the arrest rates uh, for stop and search in England and Wales are about 17%. So 17 out of every 100. So still not uh, great by any any measure. But actually, the, the arrest rate for Northern Ireland sits at 7%. So 93 out of every 100 stop and searches does not result in any further action. So the question is then, when you have these repetitive stop and search powers done um, with little effect, and remember as well, stop and search by its legal nature is not evenly spread. It tends to be concentrated in socioeconomically deprived areas. We have the research to show that through the Young Life and Time survey. You know, what then is the impact at the community level? Because we know all criminological research points to the fact that it has overall a net negative effect on police community relations. Um, any of the criminological work again shows us that police initiated contacts such as through stop and search actually tend to have more negative and create more negative perceptions of the police. So uh, if you have those sorts of basic criminological baseline um, issues, then of course in Northern Ireland you lay on the issues of history, you, you layer on then of course issues of communities uh, wanting to support the police, for example, but maybe, um, you know, these sorts of, of use of police powers might create some barriers and, and uncertainty. So you've got a, a complex amalgam of issues in there. So getting back to how we, we got to the, the conference, I mean, this is research which has been on, I suppose, ongoing for about three years. And back in 2017, off that initial work with the Detail TV, we decided to run a small scale conference here at Queen's. Um, uh, really, we didn't get any what you could call kickback from that um, 
in terms of any sort of policy change or any progression around the stop and search agenda. So in conjunction with Include Youth and the Children's Law Centre in Belfast, we decided we would run for 2019 another conference really to try and and keep uh, some sort of pressure on this as an issue because again as we know stop and search as a practice is generally unchanged and and unchanging in Northern Ireland so uh, for this conference we we decided um, we would uh, try to um, you know aim at the top levels of of, uh, public policy uh, and the criminal justice system so we managed to secure um, the new Chief Constable Mr Simon Byrne this was in fact his first public engagement as, as Chief Constable so it was great to have him speaking at Queen's. We also had Professor Anne Skelton. Uh, she is a member of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. So they were certainly our big headline speakers, but we also had a number of other um, uh, national and international level experts. We had Katrina French. The, she is a chief executive of Stopwatch UK. That is probably one of the foremost um, stop and search advocacy rights-based groups in England and Wales, which uh, you know really, really pushes around the issue of stop and search. We also had uh, Professor Ben Bradford. Ben is uh, probably one of the leading um, international criminologists generally. He's written extensively around stop and search. I've had the pleasure of, of publishing with Ben, uh, and he was able to bring over certainly a lot of the, the social science criminological evidence mm-hmm. around stop and search. Uh, and then we also had the Assistant Chief Constable Tim Mayers. We had Kula Yusuma, the Commissioner for Children and Young People in Northern Ireland, um, and the Police Ombudsman as well. And, and uh, not to forget Debbie Waters, the Vice Chair of the Police. Board. So uh, when you, you we put all that together, we, we spent a number of months organising that. Probably the most significant event there has been on issue of, issues of policing and children and young people in Northern Ireland and specifically concentrating on stop and search. Brilliant. Sounds like you had a really great cross-sectoral representation. I'm really interested to hear about some of the messages that came out of that conference, particularly with regards to the PSNI so how are the represent, representatives of the police responding to these statistics that he found? Because they're pretty significant yeah, and pretty I mean, damning. Yeah, I mean, certainly we can start off. I mean, certainly the chief constable didn't make um, uh, too much effort in many regards to defend the current status quo because a lot of that is public information that's based on their own statistics. I think like any uh, criminological statistics, there is always some room for interpretation and certainly in the press and the media, um, w- w- one of the big headline statistics is that between 2004-05 and 2015-16, PSNI's use of the everyday stop and search PS and MDA increased by 74%. Um, uh, albeit it's decreased ever slightly in the last couple of years. Uh, but of course, PS and I were claiming that was incorrect. In fact, the powers had only increased by 25%. So of course, overall, the powers have increased by 25%, but those powers specifically by 74 over that time period. And really the point uh, we were making, one of the points at the conference was that if any police power, whether it be tasers or uh, whatever it happens to be, is used 74% more, yeah. you would like to think within one of the most overseen accountable policing systems yeah. in the Western world, somebody might have picked that up. Uh, so that was one of the points. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the chief constable, uh, we had a cross section of, of young people as well from a variety of backgrounds through Include Youth. Uh, and he did recognise that, you know, there are issues with policing and young people. I mean, no chief constable is going to deride his own organisation. So I think there was a subtle recognition um, that there needs to be more work 
there needs to be more work done around the policing of children and young people because what we we do know and this I suppose leads into Anne Skelton from the UNCRC uh, is that PSNI in some regards are actually a little bit ahead of the game in terms of the policy framework around stop and search um, in their own code of practice there's a code of practice around the abuse of pace powers um, they actually have the United Nations uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child built in uh, which essentially notes that any policing activity must be done in the best interests of the child. Um, yet that doesn't seem to be the case in terms of the use of stop and search against children and young people. Because again, since 2000, um, uh, 10, 11, up until the present day, around 35,000 children have been subject to, to stop and search power. So that is quite significant, again, uh, with very very low outcomes. So there is certainly a recognition there that there will perhaps be more work around that. Also, the Chief Constable did make some reference to the potential for IEGs, independent advisory groups. We have those in England and Wales, and they would be independent scrutiny panels, essentially, which would be provided with individual cases and tickets and potentially body-worn video footage to actually scrutinise local stop and searches at a local area. So whether within our current accountability machinery we're going to to get uh, that level, I don't know, but I think it was gratifying to hear uh, to hear that mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is really interesting that, as you say, we have so many layers with regards to accountability and transparency of policing. Yet this is something that seemed to slip under the radar a bit. Yeah, that's it's an interesting one, Julian. The, I mean, there's there's a nice phrase from uh, another academic, Cath uh, Murray in Scotland, who's done a lot of work around stop and search. For anybody listening, her, her work's very accessible, um, and she uses this nice terminology about hot and cold policy climates. And when you think about it, in Northern Ireland, for the last twenty years, um, we have had very hot policy debates around police reform, around community police around the terrorist threat, around the composition of PSNI. Um, So most of the attention, both academic and public policy, has gone very naturally into those areas. Uh, And very much on the the other side of that coin, issues like stop and search, they, um, I think, uh, I've certainly described with Ben Bradford and some of her work, uh, stop and search has been recoded as a a good police power precisely because it is Mm -hmm. a normal police power. It's a movement away from the extreme remedies from which we've come from. So therefore, perhaps people have just misassumed or, you know, they've um, thought that it is very naturally governed under the, the regulative human rights framework that we have here. But in fact, that cold policy climate around stop and search has, as we've seen, as statistics bear out, has deflected attention uh, away. And it's sort of fallen through the cracks, I think, of those various hot policy climates. Uh, and it's only now that we've actually started to, you know, started to look at it. So it is an interesting issue that is such an elusive power, you know, not just here, but for England uh, and Wales, because it does require quite a high level of discretion in terms of police organisational policy around it, in terms of individual officer decision making, Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we don't follow police officers around every minute of every shift and question every single decision they make. So uh, the the only real way we do have to question that are through the patterns of use. And and that's, again, where we're seeing the problems. And then this, this cold policy climate as I've talked about, um, this is is where stop and search has been probably for too long. Mm-hmm. And of course, with England and Wales, we know that there are disproportionate levels of stop and search amongst black youths. Do we have any sort of discrepancies like that here in Northern Ireland, say in relation to religion? 
Uh, well, that's well, a very good question, Gillian. One of the things which does stand out, PS and I do not currently um, publish any information to do with ethnicity in Northern Ireland. Now, certainly the work with Ben, we tried to delve into this. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think at least according to the last census, I imagine it's going to change under the next one, um, ethnic minority population in Northern Ireland sits at around one8 um, to percent So I think, uh, you know, being from black minority uh ethnic community in Northern Ireland, um, as Ben and I have argued, it doesn't perhaps demarcate you uh, and your community in the same way as it might mm-hmm. in England or Wales, but that's not to say that it doesn't happen. But we simply, and again, astonishingly, we don't have data around that. On the issue of religion, of mm-hmm. course, the orange and green issue is never too far away. Mm-hmm. PS and I do not currently record religious background when they do a stop and search, primarily because there's no legal obligation for them to do so. Uh, so this is, again, a debate around yeah. could we, should we be doing this? Uh, and, you know, any of the research I've done, absolutely the police do not in any shape or form engage in sectarian policing doing stop and search in one community more than the other but I think you know this is about being mature it's about being able to have some of these debates and saying well actually if you're going to be doing stop and search in a certain area of North Belfast of course it's going to be in a more Protestant or more Catholic area because it's divided so it's not uh, it's it's about removing some of the myth and removing some of the the barriers to transparency so Mm -hmm. yeah that that issue of transparency I think is ongoing we debated that at the conference Mm -hmm. uh, and at the moment there doesn't seem to be any movement within PSNI or desire to record religious background. In fact, um, one of the assistant chief constables, Alan Todd, who is responsible ultimately for stop and search, uh, he was very categorical and clear in the most recent policing board publication around stop and search uh, that this they were simply not going to pursue this uh, as an avenue. So um, I think that's something to keep a watching brief on. Uh, we do know that um, outside uh, religion or ethnicity, um, certainly travelling community do tend to be quite heavily uh, stopped and searched uh, and you know proportional to population. Again, not a great deal of focus on that, um, but certainly figures from the Criminal Justice Inspectorate do show they they are heavily overrepresented in terms of stop and search practice. So I think what we do in general, um, when you look at um, PSNI's publicly available data, you actually compare that to what's available in England or Wales, and particularly the Met, we're probably about 10 years behind, because even if you you can go on, you can get the Excel sheets, you can get the raw data, you can get the information uh, on PSNI's website. Unless you really know what you're doing with that data or you know what you're looking for, it's quite hard to interpret and understand. So, um, you know, therein itself lies, uh, you know, lies a problem. I've been down recently to the performance committee of the the policing board, Um, you know, and even at that level, you know, uh, and it's not being unfair, but, you know, even officials at the policing board, um, you can see that uh, this issue and the data and the information around stop and search um, can be quite confusing. So uh, I think we do need to, to revisit how we record information, what we record and what we actually do with it because ultimately um, you know it it is about transparency and I think the more transparency there is around this power um, the better because you know politicians in one hand uh, it's that nice phrase that David Ford once had um, you know there's a big difference between evidence-based policy and policy-based evidence stop and search is this nice free you know uh, catch-all type um, policing power when actually of course the evidence about the policy shows that it doesn't particularly work so I think that might help to create clarity about use of this particular power. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's an issue across institutions, certainly as a prison researcher as well. I noticed that quite often huge amounts of data are collected 
And at times, people don't necessarily know what to do with that data. Do you have any other take-home messages from the conference? Um, I think that the, the big take-home message um, is that children and young people, I think over the last 20 years in Northern Ireland, um, have tend to be mar- tended to be marginalised as part of the whole police reform process. It has all been about the visible structural changes with their name, badges, 50-50 recruitment. Um, and I suppose rightly so. You know, you can't fix everything at once. And I think children and young people have been prioritised down. Now, not totally out of sight, uh, but certainly they've been prioritised down. Uh, and as a result, you know, there are significant um, sections of young people in Northern Ireland who do have issues with the police. I mean, the recent um, Young Life and Time survey we ran with Dirk Shubotson in the school as well, that shows there is a quantitatively different um, uh, perception amongst 16-year-olds, young people in Northern Ireland, uh, compared to adults uh, when when considering the police. I think the, the current um, adult uh, perception of fairness and, and confidence runs at about 78, 80% or so, but actually the Young Life and Time survey showed us that actually that drops to about 50, just over 50% of children, or only 50% think that police do a good job and they treat them fairly. Uh, again, when we broke that down, down. And this is where, uh, you know, we were able to look at some uh, religious differences. Actually, that changes. Uh, Protestant unionist uh, and loyalist self-defined children actually had a higher perception of fairness and confidence in the police than the average. But actually, self-defined Catholic and Republican children uh, were much lower. Now, that's not in any shape or form to say that the police are doing uh, policing differentially. But that itself is probably a window into those communities and the narratives and the perceptions that are crafted uh, around PSNI. So I think, you know, those are important conversations that we actually need to have. have. I mean, even on um, BBC Newsline um, last night as part of uh, a wider debate around the composition of PSNI, uh, they had two schoolgirls from Derry and they were two, uh, you know, uh, young schoolgirls and they were very clear and articulate in saying being a police officer was simply not a choice because of where they lived and the potential threats to them and their family. So I think, you know, the, the issue of, of um, you know, policing and young people uh, runs much deeper. It's not just about how they're police, but it's actually what they think about the police. Who are the future people going into the police? What do young people actually want from policing? And I, I think, you know, that is something which we probably need to spend the next while working on. So that's probably one of the main messages to take home from the conference. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And I think whenever you have a police force that are trying to build legitimacy in communities, then these figures must have a huge impact on that as is showing with your figures in relation to children's perceptions. Um, I think as well, having a teenager and knowing that my teenager and his friends routinely were stopped and searched, that maybe police bodies don't necessarily think about the impact that it has sometimes. You know, children say it as a very demeaning thing and quite a traumatic thing at times as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, we had that cross-section of young people there and they we deliberately had one of the sections called Young People Talk Back and asking questions around why the, the police tend to, to you know, stop and search particular groups of young people more often um, than, than other sections of the young population. And, and the bottom line from the young people was that this is damaging to their relations. They see it, um, you know, outside the technicalities of whether the is used correctly or incorrectly you know young people see it as a form of harassment they see it as a form of 
uh, oppression. They see them being singled out, and that does damage long-term relations. I think one of the, the really interesting points Katrina French made from Stopwatch uh, was around this thing and process which happens after children leave primary school. You know, in the primary school, we have our local community officers who come in and talk about, you know, drugs and stranger danger, no sorts of issues. And the police are, at that age group, generally uh, seen as a good thing. But something between the ages of 10 and 18 happens in terms of how children, young people are treated. Um, uh, and that changes their perception. So I think it is about looking at the long term impact uh, negative uh, relations can have on children and young people can you think about it and again it's not in any way directly correlating it to stop and search but you know when you look at the basis for the Brixton riots when you look at the basis for the London riots um, and then you look to Northern Ireland recently we have had sporadic episodes of violence uh, not the other day when the PS and I were trying to clear a bomb um, from the Craigan and they had young people you know 13, 14, 15 years old um, through petrol bombs at the police while they were trying to protect the community. There are fundamental issues there about what people think, how they're being manipulated by a particular group. So I think that is a very, very significant um, issue. Uh, is there a, a vacuum or has there a vacuum been created, at least in some communities, a gap around children and young people, and, and how can we how can we bridge that? Because you know, outside uh, you know perceptions of the police, you know, potentially this is going to lead uh, you know young people to have criminal records and affect their life chances. Nobody wants that. So I think there is that bigger conversation about you know that that touch paper, the the, the relationship between the police and young people, and the wider ripple effect that that can potentially have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sounds like policing in Northern Ireland is a hugely complex issue. I think uh, you mentioned briefly that uh, you were on Newsline last night talking about 50-50 policing. So I might ask you to just debrief us a bit about that before you go. Yeah, I mean, over the last, um, over the last, I suppose really since last year, there has been a, a slowly building but emerging debate around the composition of PSNI. Of course, when we go back to the patent reform process, um, that, of course, created what was known as 50-50. So for every other Protestant person uh, appointed uh, as a police officer, there would also have to be a Catholic. Now, that ran between uh, 2001 and 2011, and it got the PSNI composition in terms of, of Catholic uh, police officers up from about 8% up to around, I think, 31 32% as it is now. But what we have seen since the the, the finish of the 50-50 scheme back in 2011 is a bit of a rowing back in terms of composition. Um only about a third, give or take a third of all applications coming in to be to PSNI are from people of the Catholic uh, of a Catholic background, uh, and then only a fifth of those again actually make it onto the training program. And we also know that there's a slightly higher dropout rate for Catholic recruits and officers than there are for Protestant ones. So uh, basic mathematics: if that situation does not change and continues on its current trajectory, we are going to go. Uh, we are going to go backwards because when you, when you look at it um, dispassionately, we had this essentially what was um, a community societal solution through 
50 and the positive discrimination offered to a political problem, which was support for the police and the new policing system guaranteed by the legal infrastructure around uh, 50-50. Of course, that was designed by Patton to get us from A to B, essentially to, to get us to a natural tipping point where joining the police would be normal and there would be enough of a, a critical mass of people joining. But that itself was predicated on Northern Irish society becoming normalised. And of course, we are still 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement more. Far from being normal, we still have sectarianism. We have a frankly dysfunctional political uh, setup. We have a severe terrorist threat, um, and really, what we've got those that, that social community solution uh, in the absence of our legal framework to help that along, that has now become the problem. Okay, and what we're doing now, and and the the, the political uh, all we have now are political solutions and and, and sound bites to throw around this, and you know, you, through a swathe of both current and former police officers, uh, there's a mixed bag of opinion. Some people have said, yes, we need 50-50 back. Um, I think Hugh Ord uh, was talking about that last night too. Others have said, no, we don't want 50-50 back. Regardless of opinion, uh, A, it's not going to happen anytime soon, even if we did want it because of political dysfunctionality, both here uh, and in London. Uh, but also as well, uh, the, the, you know, the, the danger is if we do nothing uh, you know, there will be consequences. We are going backwards. Uh, if you're a young Catholic officer from an area where there may be paramilitary influence, where there may be a dissident threat, it's not a simple choice of do I want to be a police officer or not? Is this a viable career or not? Actually, you've got a whole range of complex issues about yourself, your friends, your families, your partners. Um, you know, so those all play in as well. And, you know, I think it's important as well not just to concentrate on um, Catholic nationalist community. We also have a problem with underrepresentation from working class loyalist yeah. communities too. I mean, Debbie Waters, the vice chair of the policing board, she has long said, you know, this is an issue and that perhaps we need to think about cadet schemes or something to help bridge that gap. So, um, you know, when, when you look at look at it from that perspective, um, PSNI is still and including gender as well, uh, we're still a long way from representative of society. And, and I think it's also important that's not just in terms of, you know, the start and the finish that we have a representative organisation because representation and who the police are, that actually feeds into the wider community policing agenda. Um, you know, people don't just make judgments about the police in that instrumental sense of they do a good job, they keep our area safe. People actually make, and certainly I'd say in certain communities in Northern Ireland more so, uh, much deeper normative assessments around the police in terms of who they are. Do we trust them? Are they us? Do they represent us? Uh, do we invest our trust and faith in them? So if you have an organisation which perhaps people feel does not represent them and is not part of their community, then of course, um, you know, that makes it very difficult beyond the instrumental doing the police job well uh, element to, to gain that deeper level of community trust. And as I said last night uh, on the news, um, you know, I think we, we need to we could probably take some lessons from 2007 when there were hard conversations had at a community level around uh, signing up when Sinn Féin first signed up to police. I remember being at Clonard Monastery uh, off the Falls Road to one of the big public meetings with Sinn Féin just before they signed up. And there were very, very difficult, hard Conversation. So I think perhaps in terms of composition and 50-50, we do need to go because if you actually look at PSNI's own commissioned research through Deloitte, west of the ban, there's a very significant apathy amongst Catholic nationalist um, community to, to applying uh, to PSNI compared to Protestants who, who, who there's, you know, applications are from across, uh, across Northern Ireland, whereas we don't see that. So... Yeah. 
we need to understand why in those communities um, young people particularly uh, are not considering applying for the police. And, and I think the other the other complex issue is this. And I've talked about this already. <coughs> You've got young people in you know communities. This is not just this idea, will I join the police, will I not? But you've actually in certain areas got young people being cajoled or um, pushed, uh, whatever terminology you want to use, even if this was in England or Wales, you might call it radicalisation, uh, and being pushed towards the option of paramilitary organisations. You know, 21 years after the Good Friday Agreement, uh, young people are still joining. And that's not just that these groups exist. They're, the Assistant Chief Constable Barbara Gray recently, as part of some of their Brexit assessment, has, has used the words of active recruitment of these groups. So, you know, how on earth uh, in those sorts of communities uh, can being in the police ever be an option? Uh, you know, when there are so many push and pull factors away from from joining it. So uh, I think that the the issue of representation composition runs much deeper than than the superficial political sound bites around orange and green. I think absolutely, and it raises this issue about policing being this innately uh, patriarchal instrument in that policing makeup is what white predominantly male predominantly affluent you know with regards to the the class uh, makeup and so it is like this group that polices the other you know and in a sense we are all the other and that maybe feeds into the legitimacy of uh, policing in working class communities and then particularly working class communities of a nationalist background. And I wonder within that about the position of community restorative justice, which obviously you're linked into as well, because as an abolitionist, if we're thinking about transformative futures and what that looks like, then it's about not having this dependence upon policing as a sort of violent arm of the state. It's about thinking about transformative solutions and an element of that is something that's restorative. But what I'm hearing from you is that in the vacuum where policing, you know, could be, should be, that uh, we're seeing paramilitaries coming in rather than something restorative and reparative building up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the persistent toleration of violence in many communities towards, again, mainly young males um, in, in society, uh, we do have quite a healthy disregard for, for the human rights of children and young people. Um, you know, that blind eyes are still being turned towards this form of violence. Uh, unfortunately, um, attitudes have not, in those cases, in many cases, changed. So uh, how can we, um, uh, you know, increase thresholds to violence, you know, and that again comes from seeing effective policing on the ground, which because not necessarily the police is fault all the time because of the terrorist threat, they can't maybe do this thing called normal policing, whatever that looks like. So uh, certainly groups like Community Restorative Justice Ireland, um, they for a long time have played quite a pivotal role in helping communities out of violence and away from conflict on, on, across a range of um, across a range of issues, because again, um, there, there there's a spectrum to police support. There are some areas where people are vehemently against the state and the police. There are some people who might be 
moderate and marginal in the middle people who went along with the Sinn Féin support but maybe aren't quite sure. Uh, there are other people who really want the police to work but maybe they're not seeing the service. So there's a spectrum of issues there and I think primarily, um, you know, CRJI have always um, been very clear that you need to support the state police. Okay, that, that that's the bottom line. There needs to be some minimal um, baseline and you have to support the police. But again, it isn't, of course, that simple. So CRJ would, would intervene in a whole range of issues from basic neighbourhood disputes through to paramilitary threats. Uh, and they do play an important bridging and linking function in communities. And of course, being a community-based restorative organisation, they do try to move away from our traditional um, punishment criminal justice model, which of course achieves very little. That punishment model is actually alive and well in the form of paramilitary attacks because it's swift, visible justice, if you even want to call it that. Uh, I don't think we will call it that. Um, so it's about getting moving away, actually understanding what's happened to the victim, um, of course, supporting victims, but also looking to the, the material reality, living, working conditions of people in those areas. What can we do to stop the people in whatever activity they've engaged in? What can we do to stop them doing it again? What is a positive outcome for the community beyond some you know, simple uh, retribution, whether it's through police or whether it's through paramilitary? So uh, it, it is a big role. And I think, you know, CRJI, are probably one of many organisations out there, not just restorative-based organisations, who do provide, if you might call it a fourth service, um, shadow policing, whatever you want to term it, to, to fill some of those gaps. And we're talking about preventative work, we're talking about education, we're talking about interface uh, groups, uh, young people's groups. You know, there is a significant amount of energy through the voluntary community sector that does go into helping keep the peace because you know, I think, uh, you know, criminologically, when you look at it, um, setting the terrorist threat aside in Northern Ireland, we are technically one of the safest societies in Western Europe for ordinary crime, you know, linked in again to the big crime drop and, and reporting issues, of course, um, complicate matters. But I, I think it is, um, you know, in, in large part in some communities, down to some of those groups, I, I don't think, you know, it would be criminologically accurate to, to, to for the police to say that they are 100% uh, responsible for the low crime society which we're used to in Northern Ireland because that does come from these other groups but they just tend not to be recognised very often yeah. because they don't speak in the same police criminal, criminal justice language uh, as the main statutory agencies do but nonetheless like to say RJ in some communities they are the lifeline they are the go-to organisation in the first instance for many community uh, problems. So these groups play a really important role in communities and I wonder what we can do to build their capacity. And I'm thinking about that within the context of austerity, where we're seeing this sort of pullback of community resources. And um, the, the current prime minister just the other week talking about increasing the criminal justice resources. So you have this pullback within the community and then this pushback with criminal justice investment. What can we do to help yeah. Those sort of restorative justice organisations? Um, well, I mean, I don't think, I mean, any of the restorative justice organisations here, whether yeah. CRJI or Northern Ireland Alternatives, I mean, they have certainly not been immune from the last decade of austerity in terms of funding, in terms of their ability and their capacity to deliver. So I think it is about, um, you know, trying to change the message there. Not yesterday, um, the new chief constable of PSNI is calling for more police officers. It's very simplistic. More police officers equals safer society 
that equals less crime. Now, maybe in relation to the terrorist threat, of course, that is, is sets uh, sets the the, the issue in a, in a different context. But fundamentally, you know, if we can embed that idea of restorative justice, that simply criminalising again of mostly young males in society does not fix a problem. It's like the uh, you'll be more familiar than I will, Gillian. Um, you know that that uh, term, the inversion of causal reality. I think Jock Young, um, the criminologist, this idea that you know as a society we are geared to fix the symptoms and not the actual causes of crime yeah. and criminality you know even going back to stop and search most 80% of all ordinary stop and searches are young, done under the Misuse of Drugs Act so the criminalisation of young males for low level drug possession is probably the message coming out of there so how can we um, you know get back to this idea of repairing the harms you know all the evidence around restorative justice shows us it saves money and it actually create solutions to problems it doesn't perpetuate them so i think you know with the the turn that we've seen in government to 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 you know right-wing government you know law classic tory law and order politics has come back with a bang more prisons uh more police more stop and search um uh, and you know that does um work against you know some of the the, the roles that the community restorative justice play uh, at the end of it um you know money is a big factor but there's lots of money still in the system, in the criminal justice system. So it's about having, I think, the faith um, in those organisations, CRJI alternatives, which have proven themselves to the nth degree through criminal justice inspections, um, through the, the various oversight they are subject to, uh, that they do provide a vital service in the community. So uh, if there is to be further disinvestment in not just CRJI, but you know the wider interventionist role of those organisations, ultimately that is going to push more people young people onto the streets. We saw that with the, the London riots and the immediate sort of year leading up to the London riots uh, in Haringey, the, the district of London, they closed somewhere in the region of about eight or nine of the the, the dozen or so youth centres in the area. What does that do? It tips more young people onto the street. It creates this issue of visibility, of moral panics, and that only feeds the law and order uh, agendas. So uh, I think that does have to be carefully carefully managed because it has a, a very uh, easy ability, I think, to, dis to spiral swiftly out of control. Uh, and, you know, in the current climate, which is sort of lurching towards the, the right across society, um, punishment and incarceration is, is a far too easy answer for all these complex social problems which have bubbled up um, uh, more prominently under the whole austerity agenda. Okay, brilliant. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you, Gillian. Thank you very much, John. That was great. Goodbye. Thank you for listening today. You have been listening to Criminology Matters. I'm Gillian, and you can catch the other episodes in our series on lawpod.org, where all our show notes are available.